I'm going to begin this morning by reading our scripture, and I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll do, we'll do through verse 20. 1 Samuel chapter 1, we'll go through verse 20, and let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. There was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Joraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. You're going to need to remember all those names. Just kidding. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. These are our characters this morning, Elkanah, Hannah, and Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah did not. Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of heaven's armies at the tabernacle. The priests of the Lord at that time were two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. On the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Penina and each of her children. And that's a pretty elaborate thing for a guy to do. And though he loved Hannah, he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. A clear indication that Hannah is the love of his heart. So Penina would taunt Hannah. That word is interesting, taunt. We'll get to that later. And make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, it was the same. Penina would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkanah would ask. Why aren't, why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having 10 sons? Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah stood up and went to pray. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was deep in anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. She made this vow. O Lord of heaven's armies, if you look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. Now this sounds like bargaining to us, but it is not. We'll hear why later. He will be yours for his entire lifetime, and as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. <clears throat> as she prayed to the Lord, Eli watched her, seeing her lips move but hearing no sound. He thought, she's been drinking. Must you come here drunk, he demanded. Throw away your wine. <clears throat> oh, no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger, but I am very discouraged. And I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think that I am a wicked woman, for I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Look at this. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. The entire family got up early the next morning and went to worship the Lord once more. Then they returned home to Ramah. When Elkanah slept with Hannah, the Lord remembered her plea, and in due time she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I asked the Lord for him. Father, thanks so much, and I pray that today our, our word from you would be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, Anna, Anna Jarvis was born in 1864. 
She was the daughter of Anne Marie Jarvis. Anna's mother, Anne Jarvis, the mom, started a service initiative she called Mother's Day Work Clubs. And it expanded to several cities within her lifetime. The purpose of the Mother's Day Work Clubs was to improve sanitary and health conditions, and they also uh, treated and cared for and fed wounded soldiers, both Confederate and Union, without partiality. It's telling that the first Mother's Day were actually, Mother's Days were actually work days for moms. On, on May 12, 1907, two years after Anne, the mother's death, Anna, the daughter, held a memorial to her mom and she started campaigning for a Mother's Day, a national holiday. She succeeded. In 1914, this day was nationally recognized as a day to honor our mothers. Happy Mother's Day. It's fascinating that by the 1920s, listen to this, Anna Jarvis had become soured by the commercialization of the holiday she started. So she and her sister Elsinore, they spent their family inheritance writing and demonstrating against what the holiday had become. According to her New York Times obituary, Anna became embittered because too many people sent their mother's printed greeting cards. <laughs> this, is, this is her quote. She said, a printed card means nothing except that you are too lazy to write the woman who has done more for you than anything in the world. So moms, we'll try hard to honor you today more appropriately by seeing what we can learn from one of the most famous moms in the Bible, the Old Testament woman, Hannah. Here's what we need to look at today. First, Hannah's suffering. And then Hannah's response to her suffering. And finally, how she got to that response. And where we really want to land our thoughts today is on Hannah's ideas about God because this is what produced her liberating response. So first, Hannah's suffering. It's obvious from the text that Hannah was suffering, and she's suffering in at least two ways. One, she was certainly suffering socially. Did you hear Hannah's sister wife, Penina, taught her? Now, in a very real sense, Penina was Hannah's most important social relationship. And this taunting would have been constant. This can't have been pleasant for Elkanah, the husband, either. As a side note, polygamous marriage, multiple wives is found throughout the Bible. But it's interesting that everyone we read about that's in a polygamous marriage was unhappy. The Hebrew word for taunt there is the word tsarah. And it means, you have to see this, it means one who vexes or a rival or literally a rival wife. This, this relationship between sister wives was so proverbially, proverbially difficult, they had a word for it. So Hannah is stuck in a social relationship, a social situation perfectly constructed to punish her. Second, she was also so suffering culturally. She was violating the most important cultural expectation for women of the day, to have children. Now, there were, there were reasons that women were expected to have children beyond just the oppression of men. Number one, having children improved the economic position of your family. Simply put, you know, more hands to work. Secondly, children were the ones who would provide for you in your old age, so kids meant long-term security. I regularly try to guilt, I mean, I remind my children of that principle. Third, having more children obviously increased the population, which was a way of uh, increasing the size of your army over your, your enemies. The expecta expectation of women 
um, having children in the ancient world was more practical than it was misogynistic. Now, no doubt, there would have been misogyny in, in many couples and in some cases, but it was also a practical necessity. And in the face of this huge cultural need and expectation, Hannah was childless. That's obvious. What may be less obvious to us is, is how diligent Hannah was in her relationship with God. And the Hebrew scholars seem to be united in their observation that for the Hebrew reader, this would have been the most obvious aspect of the text. Hannah was a righteous woman. And in, in part because of Hannah's righteousness, she had come to believe that the Lord had closed her womb. Go back and read that later. Now, whether or not she was directly blaming this on God, Hannah knew without question that God could do something about it, and up to this point, he had not. So Hannah suffered, socially and culturally. Every time she went to the well to gather water with the other young moms, every time she went to the market with, with, without her own child in tow, every time she sat alone thinking about her future, whenever she saw her own mother, whenever she saw her childhood friends with their laps full of children, Hannah suffered. Now it's just a fact, at least in my house, that uh, women suffer with more grace than men do. When I get sick, it is a, I, 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 I want five counties to be notified, and I, I whine constantly. When Diane gets sick, she goes back to work. But, it, but Hannah is able to manage her suffering with uncommon grace, maybe more grace than the typical extra grace that women seem to have. And eventually, because of the grace with which she responded to her suffering, she was liberated from her cultural constraints and her suffering ended. So how did this happen? And it's not in the way you, th you think at first. So let's look at how Hannah responded to her suffering. And I'm going to uh, read again verses 9 through 11. Give me that, Thomas. Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Literally, Hannah stood up and went to pray. Eli, the priest, was sitting in his customary place beside the entrance to the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord, and she made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime, and as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. Now, Hebrew scholars like to explain that Hebrew authors, don't miss this, Hebrew authors almost always intend for their characters to speak for something larger than themselves. This is, of course, true in many English novels. Uh, if you went to high school here in the United States, then you know, and may, maybe in your country as well, you know that uh, high school English teachers are forever torturing their students in an effort to get them to identify what the character in the novel represents. But this is rarely true in English in brief descriptions like the events in this passage. Usually those settings in English are just, they just give you the facts and the flow. But for, but for the Hebrew author, even in short settings, their characters often represented something larger than themselves. Here's what that means here. In this story, Penina and Elkanah represent two different cultural trends, two different cultural voices. This may not be immediately obvious to us, but it makes a huge difference when we see it. On the one hand, 
Penina represents the larger cultural expectation for women to have children. So barrenness was pitied and ridiculed. Mother was, was what an ancient Near Eastern woman was supposed to be. This was her identity. As a result of this incredibly strong cultural current, a young ancient Near Eastern girl learned very early that the path to happiness was being a mom. Mothering was what would give her a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment as a woman. You know, this may not be just an ancient world attitude. On the other hand, Elkanah represents an alternative for Hannah. He represents another cultural narrative. Now, Elkanah is a noble character in this story. He's a noble character. In fact, for the first few sentences, we think this story is about Elkanah. He goes up year after year to sacrifice an honorable activity for a righteous, good man. In the sacrificial meal setting, the author is careful to tell us, remember, that he serves his wife and kids. He doesn't just play the man hovering over to the side of the table with the other men expecting the, you know, the woman to take care of herself and her brood. No, he, he takes care. He oversees. And finally, he gives a special portion of the sacrificial meal to his childless wife, Hannah. And Hebrew scholars point out that this is a clear textual indication that Hannah is his true love. This is the point of the special portion. Finally, like any good hero, ancient or modern, Elkanah is aware of his true love's suffering and he throws himself into the mix, offering his love as the source of fulfillment for her. He offers Hannah a viable alternative. Elkanah wants to rescue Hannah from her cultural and social suffering. He could be the hero of the next Disney movie. You don't have to worry, Hannah. I'll take care of you and your future. You are my true love. I love you more than 10 sons, which is saying a lot for an ancient Near Eastern man. Obviously, Elkanah is not your typical brute. But if you miss everything else, don't miss this. Elkanah, even though he's a good man, even though he's a noble figure, even though this has the potential of a great love story, Elkanah still represents something other than Hannah's God-ordained purpose and design. Elkanah offers her a countercultural way of finding her satisfaction, but it's still not the offer that meets Hannah's design. In effect, Elkanah is saying, Hannah, you don't have to find your satisfaction and meaning in being a mother. Find it in me. Let me be the man of your dreams. Let me solve your problem. And this is the message behind nearly every great modern love story. <laughs> but you and I were designed to find our meaning, purpose, and pleasure in God, in God alone. Nothing else can truly satisfy. Now, women, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but this may be starting to sound familiar. With some minor adjustments, the author could have set this story in the 21st century American suburbs. Women, you are told, find your satisfaction and meaning in your children. If they are well-mannered, popular, attractive, very accomplished academically and several other resume-building pursuits, then you will be completely happy. In other words, successful children equals happy mom. Or how about an alternative? Women, find a great love. Find someone who will meet your needs body and soul. Then you'll be satisfied and happy. 
He should be very nice looking with a great bill that doesn't dissolve into a beer belly at 43. He should be wild about you. He should be extremely successful, well-spoken, hilarious, and very confident in all settings to the degree that you find this man, you will be satisfied. How's it going, women? Or in the 21st century, there is yet another alternative for you, isn't there? Women, you can finally find your satisfaction and meaning in the ways that have traditionally been reserved for men. You too can be as driven and worried as your father was. You can find your satisfaction in your career. You can work and plan and worry as if your life depends on it because you believe that it does. And you can now open yourself up to the awesome side benefits of sleepless nights, heart disease, and anxiety disorders that in generations past were reserved mostly for men. Congratulations. But we know these alternatives don't work. We all know it. We read the tearful testimonies of the rich and fabulous who realize that all that they have pursued and mostly attained hasn't given them what they were really seeking. We know these alternatives do not satisfy. Some of you have lived these alternatives. By the way, I think uh, we read these stories with satisfaction, partly because it reminds us that we aren't the only ones who are unhappy. (laughs) And then we go out and pursue the very same cultural norms as if our life depends on it because we believe it does. Let me summarize. Hannah is suffering and she's being told, try harder to have a child because that's where your satisfaction and meaning will be, or just rely on your great love to satisfy you, that's what your heart really wants. But Hannah ends up rejecting both of these cultural narratives. So what does she do? How does she respond? In response to her suffering, Hannah prays a transformative, faith-soaked, God-dependent prayer, and it changes everything. Now, let's, let's admit, this prayer sounds to our ears like she's bargaining with God, but she's not. And the context makes it clear. Here's what I mean. Uh, The verse 9 slide, bring it up. Yeah, thanks, Thomas. Hannah, look at that. Hannah stood up. Verse 9. Hannah stood up and went to pray. This is a Hebrew idiom that means she decidedly resolved within herself. This, This is like the English idiom. If you know this, she put her foot down. We'll come back to the prayer itself in a moment. But first, I want you to look at the heart behind this prayer on first reading. Again, it sounds a bit like bargaining, but we know she's not bargaining in part because of the way the response plays out. So look at this. Uh, Next slide, Thomas, verses 16 through 19. I want you to see how the response plays out. I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have given him or asked of him. Oh, thank you, she exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again. She was no longer sad. They've sacrificed once more, the return home. Oh, kind of slept with her. And then she got pregnant. If Hannah had been bargaining with God, then the order of her response would have been different. The order would have been prayer, provision, peace. But in Hannah's case, the order was prayer, peace then provision because Hannah's prayer here is transformative faith-soaked and God-dependent look 
Hannah had been praying for years that God would give her a child. But something different has happened here. Hannah has resolved something new. There's been a shift. Her faith has finally taken hold of her heart, and she has seen it in a new way, with new eyes. When Hannah prays, her, her prayer is essentially this. God, all my life, I've wanted a child for me. It's what has been expected of me, and I wanted someone to love. I wanted the joy it would bring, the status it would afford. I wanted the security. I wanted this for me. But now, if it's your will, I want a child for you. I still long for the privilege of giving birth, but I surrender. I surrender. I want it for you, Lord. Did you notice the reference to no razor will ever be used on his head? That means he will be a Nazarite, which is essentially a virtually full-time volunteer Levite working for the priest and for for the temple. In other words, Hannah now wants a child in service to God. And the result of this prayer experience is peace. Again, the peace comes in response to the newfound faith and resolve and the newfound surrender. It doesn't come with the opening of her womb. She doesn't know that yet. Hannah has finally let go. She has surrendered to God and to his plan for her life. She doesn't want anyone else's story for her. She wants God's story. She moves above and beyond cultural restraints. She moves past the need for a man. She moves to real satisfaction from the one source that can give her real satisfaction. So how does Hannah get to this place, this place of surrender, this place of new resolve, new, new, new framing, new way of seeing it? She put her foot down. How does she get to that place? Well, the key to understanding Hannah is to hear her prayer, fuller prayer, recorded for us in chapter 2. So I want us to read the first three verses, and as we read it, I want you to see that Hannah recognizes God alone is God. We're going to go through this really quickly, but I want you to see three powerful principles that Hannah recognizes in this fake, faith-soaked, God-dependent, transformative prayer. God alone is God. Let's read this together, verses 1 through 3. Then Hannah prayed and said, we're going to read this together, by the way. Don't know if I'll mention that. If you're reading at home, you read as well. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. God alone is God. Just a couple of quick observations. Number one, this this realization is where spiritual movement always begins. This is where spiritual movement in our life always begins. God alone is God. And we get here often by, don't miss this, we get here often by leaning into our suffering. Not by dancing around it, not by distracting ourselves through it, by leaning into it. We don't run to some other alternative. 
Now verses four through seven, and what I want you to see here is that she, she's experiencing the great reversal. I love this. Uh, two observations, again, the great reversal summarizes the teaching ministry of Jesus. If you know the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Wait, what? Blessed are those who mourn. For Jesus, the way to live is to die. The great reversal is able to see itself and its suffering in an entirely different light. The great reversal says, if I hadn't experienced the sorrow I'm experiencing, the social rejection I've experienced, then I would not have gotten this freedom that I now have. And you can't say that unless you've experienced the great reversal. The great reversal reframes all of our experiences beautifully. And we are free. We cannot be tied down. We cannot be taken out by our circumstances anymore. Finally, verses, uh, second part of verse 8 through verse 10, God is the source of our ultimate salvation, satisfaction, and freedom. And Hannah sees this. God is the source of our ultimate salvation, satisfaction, and freedom. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Listen, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, don't snooze on those kind of verses when you read those in the Old Testament. Who, because who is Hannah talking about? Is it Eli the priest? Probably not. Is it David, King David, the one who was come? Yes, but also someone much greater than David. Those of you who know the Bible story, you'll know that Hannah's prayer sounds much like the prayer of another young girl who got pregnant unexpectedly, Mary. In her prayer, she said this, He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. Look, Jesus Christ is the ultimate climax of the pattern of salvation that Hannah experienced here. He is the ultimate source of our salvation, satisfaction, and freedom. Come on, women, culture tells you that you must be thin and successful while also having perfect, accomplished children who are fathered by a gorgeous, successful man of your dreams along with being successful yourself. You can have it all. And to the degree that you have all of that, then you will be happy. So if you aren't happy, it must be that some part of that equation is not adding up in your life. But what if the whole equation is wrong? And in fact, we know it is. There's an alternative. Let's make this Mother's Day the day when we stand up and surrender. All of us. Let's have it God's way. God alone is God. He is the source of our ultimate salvation, satisfaction, and freedom. We find it in Jesus Christ. And when we find it, we are freed by the great reversal. We finally learn that the way up is down. The way to lead is to serve. 
The way to life is through death. And that, that reframes and reforms every experience in our lives, and we are free. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you um, for the freedom that you made available to us in your son, Jesus Christ, for the salvation that is available to us and for the heart satisfaction that can now be ours. Lord, we recognize this morning, we really do, our heart has longed for a hero and we have one. His name is Jesus. Father, I want to pray especially today for um, those here that are mothers. I pray that you will bless them. As we wrap up, Lord, we receive the blessing that you spoke over us earlier. And now, Lord, I pray for all of us who had mothers. I pray that increasingly, we, that we will learn from Hannah's transformative, faith-soaked, God-dependent prayer, the cry of her heart, and that we will stand up and resolve to uh, dismiss our reliance on uh, cultural trends and we'll seek the alternative, the better way, the narrow way that we find in Jesus. Thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.